Good morning, everybody. Great to see you. Thanks, Micah. Nice to see that you're awake. Um, for those of you I haven't met before, I'm Kath, and it is such a joy to see so many faces I don't recognize this morning. It's such a joy. Also lovely to see the ones I do recognize. No offense to those of you I do know, but so nice to have so many people with us this morning. Thank you for coming. Um, and just wanted to reiterate what Jamie said. We're just conscious that people will be here for all sorts of different reasons this morning. And whatever has brought you here, we're really thrilled that you're here. So whether you're sort of new to the city, looking for a church, you're a student that's just arrived, whether you've got a flyer through your door, you live around the corner from us, um, whether you're my mum, there's one of you in the room, that's great news. Um, you're all welcome, whatever's brought you here today, we're thrilled. Um, over the coming weeks, as we get going as a church, we were trying to think, like, what should we start with? What should we start sort of teaching on as we begin? Um, and we decided that we wanted to begin with a series of talks, which we're calling When Jesus Met, which for those of you in the, who are old enough in the room is based on Louis Theroux, my hero, um, when Louis met. Um, but we're going to call these, these series of talks When Jesus Met, basically looking at different encounters that Jesus had with different people throughout the Gospels, um, people from all different sorts of um, walks of life. And when we were thinking about this, we thought, you know, we want to begin in this way for three reasons, really. First of all, because as we begin to meet together in this sort of regular Sunday morning rhythm, really our most fundamental hope is that we will encounter Jesus too. We'll have our own encounters with Jesus in this place as well. And at its most simple, that's why we're here. That's why we're starting a new church. Our hope is that just as we read about the people in the Gospels together, people who have their lives turned absolutely upside down and inside out by Jesus. People who have their lives healed, transformed, who experience acceptance, forgiveness um, for the first time, freedom. Our hope and desire is that we too would begin to have those sorts of encounters with Jesus in this place. So that's reason number one we want to begin with Jesus. Um, second reason, and Jamie sort of touched on this earlier, uh, is because we fundamentally believe if we want to know what God is like, and often lots of people are in a room like this because we're hungry to know what God is like and to know him more, then you have to look no further than the person of Jesus. The Apostle Paul, who's responsible for a large chunk of the New Testament, wrote that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus himself said about himself, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And uh, one of the best ways I've actually heard this expressed in recent times, and it's so stuck with me, uh, is a scholar called T.F. Torrance, and he writes this, there is no God behind the back of Jesus Christ. So what you see in Jesus is what you get when it comes to God. If we want to know what God is like, then we have to look at the person of Jesus. So that's the second reason we want to start with Jesus. Um, and the third reason we want to start by looking at Jesus is because we believe not only in Jesus do we see what God is like, but we begin to understand what it is to be human, what it is we were truly made for. Um, and this is one of those slightly like bonkers but brilliant things we believe as Christians. And my caveat is bonkers unless, of course, it's true, which we believe that it absolutely is. Um, but this truth at the heart of our faith as Christians that we center ourselves around, that Jesus is fully God, yes, but Jesus is also fully human. And not only that, but Jesus is the only perfect human who has ever lived. And when I say the only perfect human that has ever lived, I don't mean perfect in a sort of annoying, goody-two-shoes, teacher's pet kind of a way, as much as that appeals to me, because I am sadly all of those things. My husband will vouch for it. <laughs> hate breaking rules. Hate it so much. Um, but Jesus is not perfect in that kind of way. Perfect rather in a whole, complete 
kind of a way. Jesus wholly and completely lived the kind of life that we were made to live. It's a life turned inside out, a life lived for God and for other people. In fact, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is one of the greatest Christian thinkers of the last century, another one of my heroes. He called Jesus this, the man for others, the man for others. And we passionately believe as a church that as we learn what it is to follow in the way of Jesus, he will lead us into the kind of lives that we were made to live, that we were created to live. He will lead us to flourish in this world um, as we begin to learn to take our eyes off ourselves and fix them on God and on others around us. So that's kind of why we wanted to begin with Jesus. I think there are all three good reasons. I hope you'll back me with that. Um, And we just want to invite you to join us over the coming weeks as we begin to dig in with this series, as we begin to look at the person of Jesus. You know, whether you've been a Christian for years, but you're still, like me, grappling what it is to follow in the way of Jesus, or whether you're just exploring, is there even a God, full stop. Um, We really hope that this is going to be a great sort of starting point wherever you're at on the journey. So come and join us over the next few weeks, and we'll start to try and thrash and work some of that stuff out together. Um, So, that is the plan for the coming weeks, but in the time we have remaining today, I wanted to just spend a short, I'll probably just spend the next 10 minutes or so, to speak really briefly, not about an encounter that Jesus had with someone, but about a story that Jesus told. It's in fact probably the most famous story that Jesus ever told, and I felt like God nudging me to speak about it this week, and when he did, I was like, oh, really? (laughs) I was like, everyone's heard that one. I can't talk about that one again. Um, And so I actually wrote a completely different talk. Um, And then I got to Friday and I just felt that like nudge again and felt like, no, I think this is the right story for today. Um, So I'm aware that a number of you in the room will be familiar with this story. Um, But if you've got a Bible, without further ado, um, and you want to follow along, there there may be some Bibles out on the seats as well. Apologies, this isn't on the screen. Um, Jamie reprimanded me yesterday for not having any slides for my talk. Um, I promise, I promise you, and you can hold me to my word, the next time I speak here, I will have slides. It will be a first for me, but it will happen. Um, So I'm sorry that the text isn't appearing on the screen. Um, But if you want to follow along in the Bible, turn to Luke chapter 15. And we're going to start reading at verse 11. It says this, And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. 
And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never even gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Anyone in tears yet? It's an absolute cracker of a story, isn't it? A belter. Amy Packhai taught me that word this week. It's an absolute belter of a story. Um, There is so much that could be said about it. And actually, there's so much that has been said about this story as well. Um, But in light of what I was just saying before about Jesus, that he reveals God to us and he shows us what it truly is to be human, I want to just look at the story this morning through those two lenses. Um, So firstly then, Jesus reveals to us what God is like. The story begins, doesn't it, with that moment where the youngest son, in basically in so many words, says to his father, Dad, I know that when you die, I basically stand to inherit a wad load of cash. So it'd be kind of nicer if you could just sort of do that, get around to doing that sooner rather than later so I could have my share now. So he basically wishes his dad dead so that he can get his inheritance a bit early. Um, And instead of, quite frankly, the father giving him the click round the ear that I think the rest of us reading think he deserves, the father refuses to coerce the son's love for him. He refuses to force love out of him. And instead, with sorrow in his heart, he gives way and allows the son to have what he thinks he wants and allows him to disappear off into the night. And then we watch what happens in the story. The father waits daily for his son with open arms. Despite the force of that insult, basically his son wishing him dead so that he could have his money, despite the social shame that that would have brought on his family by the son's choices that he'd made, the father paces the boundary of his land every day, scanning the horizon, looking to see whether his son might be coming home. And on the day when he finally spots his son in the distance, he sees this figure that's moving towards him, looks like it, it maybe could be his son. He's overcome with compassion and the force of his love for his boy. He sees his boy, he hitches up his robes, and the text says this, and I love this, that whilst he was still a long way off, whilst the son was still a long way off, the father begins running towards him. And it's beautiful as it is. It makes me want to choke up people when I repeat it. Um, But here's the thing you need to know about this as well. In the context that this story was first told, dignified men did not run. That was not something a dignified man did. Running was reserved for undignified younger whippersnappers or for slaves, essentially. It was the role of a slave to run. But in this moment, such is the force of the father's love that he just thinks, never mind my dignity, throws his dignity aside, takes on the characteristics of a slave 
in order to reach his son, to get to his boy, to throw his arms around him, to shower him with kisses, to welcome him home. Um, and I don't know about you, but for many of us, this is a picture of a father that can be difficult to get our heads around. My own dear dad, um, he died a number of years ago now, um, and he was an absolutely brilliant dad in lots of ways, wasn't he? Um, but let's just say physical affection, not high in his skill set. Um, <laughs> and it almost became a bit of a joke with me and my dad later in life um, that I would sort of grab his arms, one arm around me, and then the next one around me, and I'd sort of wrestle a hug out of him. Um, so the image of God as a father who comes running to embrace me is one I find intensely moving, but also sometimes, if I'm honest, one that's quite hard to hold on to at times. Um, and I'm not blaming all of that on my dad at all. It's very easy to do that, and I'm not going down that road. Um, but it is easy for me, through choices I've made as well, to slip into thinking of God as a kind of like strict headmaster type, perpetually disappointed with me for all the different things that I've been doing, who sort of reluctantly lets me in the front door when I ring the doorbell. Um, and, you know, even this week for me, when I was preparing this talk, I was speaking to a wise friend on the phone, and they were just reminding me again, I was in tears again as they were reminding me on the phone, that God is always like the father in this story. He's always waiting to embrace me. And actually, he's not even really waiting sometimes. He's legging it towards me before I even have a choice. You know, there are moments as well where, completely on my own, I wander off into a far country to use that language. And I fear that sort of frosty reception from God when I return. And at best, I sort of settle for thinking, well, maybe I could have a sort of, and you don't think these exact things, but this is how it plays out. Maybe I could have a sort of like employee, employer type relationship with God, you know, with a sort of six month probation period. If I'm on my best behavior, um, then maybe he'll sort of welcome me back in. But I'm coming to see this, and I think the heart of this story teaches us this as well, that nothing grieves the heart of God more than when we think like that. Because every day of my life and of your life, he is a father waiting to embrace us as his children. A psalmist once put it like this, and I love this. Surely your goodness and love will chase after me all the days of my life. So I want to ask you this morning, how about you? Did you come to church today feeling far off from God. Maybe for some you feel like you've come and you've wandered off somewhere into a far country. Maybe you've actually been hanging around the father, much like the older son, but in your own way, you're a bit distant. And I want to ask you this morning, what if you dared to believe that this morning God was pacing that door, waiting to watch to see if you were going to come, barging past me and Jamie on the door to get to you first, and when you finally arrived, insisting that he throw a party in your honour? But the point of the story doesn't stop there because the story doesn't just show us what God is like, this father who longs to embrace us. As I said, it also teaches us what it means to be human. And I think you see this played out in the story of the youngest son and the oldest son. So first of all, in the journey of the youngest son, you know, we read that moment we talked about at the beginning where he asks for inheritance early and wishes his dad dead. And we think, that is so out of line. How could anyone say that to their dad? It's so rude. But I think I was sort of searching my heart with this, and I was thinking, do you know what? If I'm really honest, I can be guilty of having a similar sort of transactional approach with me and God, where I can be interested in him, interested in him insofar as there's stuff in it for me, but not always necessarily overly concerned with just being with him for him. 
So the son, as the story goes, he disappears off into a far country. He recklessly spends the whole lot of what he has, every last penny, in pursuit of what he thinks is going to satisfy him, what will make him feel alive, what will make him feel free, that sense of not being responsible for anything or anyone. But in that far country, in that place where he goes in that pursuit of his ultimate freedom, he ends up a slave. He ends up having to hire himself out. He literally has to hire himself out to feed pigs, and then it gets so desperate that he starts begging to share what the pigs are eating. And it's at this low point, and I love this, the text says, I think it, I, might have given, I might have read from a wrong translation this morning, sorry about that, but in my translation, I love this. It says, he came to himself, and he realizes, hang on, if I'm going to be the servant of anyone, I might as well be my dad's servant. At least I know I'm going to get three square meals a day, and it'll treat me with a bit of dignity. So he begins that journey home. And as he arrives back at the house, and he sort of begins to recite that speech he's been preparing all the way home, that sort of begging for forgiveness speech, asking to be taken back, not as a son, as a servant, his dad won't even let him finish the speech. He can't even get halfway through the speech. His dad's like, a servant, are you joking? Quick, will someone bring him a ring for his finger? Will someone else bring him a robe to wear? Will someone else give him some new shoes? For this, my son, he says, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The point is this. God wants a son, not a servant. God wants a son, not a servant. You see this played out in the older son as well. Fast forward to him and the welcome home party. The welcome home party is underway for his brother, but the older brother is refusing to come in and celebrate. And so his dad comes looking for him, and when he finds him, the son blurts out to him. It's interesting what the son says. He says, look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never even gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And how does the father respond? First word, son. You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. You see, the son's protest reveals that he too has absolutely missed the point. He too has taken on the role of a servant. He's somehow got it into his head that he's in that employee-employer relationship with God, where good behavior earns brownie points, and we all know that points mean prizes. (laughs) But God wants a son not a servant. And I truly believe this. This is because this is what God has always wanted for humanity. This is what we are made for, to be sons and daughters of God who enjoy his company. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, who knows what that is, but apparently it's an important document in the Anglican Church, um, says this, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what we're made for, to be sons and daughters of God who enjoy his company. There's a profound moment in the book of Psalms, this this sort of song book of the Bible, when God says this, If I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world and all its fullness are mine. The point being this, God doesn't need our help. He's all set just on his own. He's doing fine. He just wants to be with us, and he longs for us to know the true freedom of being his sons and daughters. But how many of us, we do the opposite. We spend our time desperately trying to please God, turning our faith into like a list of do's and don'ts, musts, shoulds, oughts, tos. And I truly believe that God wanted to speak this to us today, that as we begin a new church in the city, God is wanting to grow us into a community of people who understand who we are. Sons and daughters, not servants. 
those who absolutely serve the city and the people around us. Absolutely, we want to be people who serve the city and everybody that we meet around us, but not because we are frantically trying to please God or earn his approval, but because we know that we are his sons and daughters. And if that's true, then that means that every single person in this city is a brother or a sister, whether or not they know it yet. Um, I want to close just by showing you how this plays out in the story. Um, something new sort of struck me um, as I was reflecting on this story this week. And it's always dangerous when something new strikes you about a story because you think you're probably making it up. Um, but I honestly think I've stumbled upon something good here. So you can quote me on this and maybe we'll see it in a commentary in years to come. Um, but that was this. I found myself thinking, what is the deal with the fattened calf in this story? Um, now, stay with me. I wasn't just craving a hamburger whilst I was reading this story, although that does happen frequently. Um, but it just struck me that in the second half of this story, which is a reasonably short story, the fattened calf is mentioned three times. They go on about it again and again, the fattened calf. It's like, why are they talking about what was on the menu? This is like slight overkill. So it got me thinking, what is the significance of a fattened calf in this story? And it got me to thinking this. The thing about a fattened calf is that it's not last-minute party food. It's not like, quick, mum, check to see whether there's some sausage rolls in the freezer. We'll whip them out. Uh, the sun's come home. A fattened calf is the kind of food that has been prepared and thought about months in advance of a party. A bit like what you would do with a Christmas dinner, where you've ordered your turkey weeks in advance. You've thought about all the different things you're going to do weeks in advance. A fattened calf has been thought about and prepared for months in advance of a party. So then I got thinking, well, why has the father been preparing for a party? He's been through this absolutely awful, humiliating ordeal with his son that has brought shame and disgrace upon the family. So why has he been getting preparations ready for a party? And then it struck me, hang on. Unless all this time he's been expecting the son. Unless every day since the son left home, he's been preparing for him to return. And rather than thinking about the dressing down that he's going to give him when he comes back, he's been thinking about how he'll clothe him in the finest clothes, how he'll feed him with the richest foods. And instead of making his return a sort of discreet family affair that they sweep under the carpet, he'll throw a massive party in his honor. And suddenly when you sort of begin to notice that about the calf, you realize too that is what the older brother kicks off about. That is what sends the older brother into a right old state. He shouts at his dad, you mean that is what you've been rearing that calf for? You are joking. You've pulled out all the stops for him. And notice in the text what the brother calls the younger son. He distances himself completely, calls him, that son of yours. You've pulled out all the stops for that son of yours. But the father gently responds by saying he wants him too, the elder son, as a son, not a servant. And when he was ready, he would throw him a party like that any day of the week. But not only that, the father invites him to come and celebrate then and there. Come and help him host the party. And notice what the father says. Earlier when the father's getting the party started, he says, let's celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And here, the very close of the story, the story closes like this. In this moment with the elder son, he uses the same exact words except two that he changes. Let's celebrate for this your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
know, where the elder son chooses that role of the servant and he distances himself from his dad, yes, but he also distances himself from his brother. But the father invites him to take on his true identity as a son and in doing so, to take on his true identity as a brother as well. And I truly believe this, that when we grasp this truth that we are sons and daughters, we begin to see others for who they really are too, our brothers and our sisters. And this, I believe, through the story but through his life, Jesus shows us what it is to be human. This is what we were made for, for God and for others. We were made to be sons and daughters first, and then we were made to be brothers and sisters 